So hello, I'm Alex Ruckkeen, I'm a barrister at Fairfax Exchange specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really, really pleased I've got with me today for the latest of the In Conversation series, uh, Dr. Lucy series. Um, what I always try to do in these things is not actually introduce the person themselves, but allow them to introduce themselves uh, in their own words. So Lucy, over to you. Introduce Morning, yourself. Morning, Alex. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'm an academic at Cardiff University. I'm currently employed as a research fellow and my fellowship's funded by Wellcome, uh, but I also teach medical law um, and I'm very happy to be here. Brilliant. There are so many things that you do which are so important and so interesting that we could, we could be here for most of the day, but we've taken a decision as we're trying to keep it to roughly 20 minutes to to focus in on your, the book you're working in on at the moment as part of the Welcome Project, Welcome is a funded project. Could you just give us a brief overview of what the book's about and then we can sort of zero in on, on at least one aspect of it? Sure, so the, the Welcome Project that I'm working on is, um, is a much bigger project and this book is a, a part of it. So the, the bigger project is looking at this idea that the Mental Capacity Act is empowering and where that came from and, um, and its kind of history. And a chapter of another book that I planned to write was looking at the Cheshire West decision and around deprivation of liberty. So uh, I'm sure most people listening to Alex's Shedinars know about Cheshire West, but it was a decision that looked of the Supreme Court in 2014, which was looking at whether three people with intellectual disabilities were deprived of their liberty or not. And they lived in what we could call post-carceral care settings. So those are care settings that we don't today associate with detention. So we tend to think of detention today as, as kind of focused on settings like psychiatric hospitals, assessment and treatment units, the kind of shadow of Winterbourne view and that kind of place. And these three people were supposed to be living in the community. Um, and in today's understanding, that's understood as a kind of freedom that you're outside of the institution. And so, one of these people was living in a setting that sounds like a small residential unit or group home. Another person was living in uh, what was called their own flat. and uh, We would probably call that supported living or independent living accommodation. Uh, and another person was living with, her, with someone who had been her foster carer um, in what, when you become an adult, would be called a shared lives living arrangement quite often. So uh, the question before the court was, are they detained because they were subject to what the court called continuous supervision and control and they weren't free to just come and go at will. And the Court of Appeal found that they weren't and the Supreme Court found that they were. And this had humongous repercussions for the Mental Capacity Act and care in general, um, because the effect of Cheshire West is that hundreds of thousands of people that we have thought of as living freely in the community and now legally considered to be detained. And that's a really paradoxical outcome. Um, and it's an outcome that I think causes a lot of cognitive dissonance for a lot of people. I think a lot of people like the dissenting judges in the Supreme Court said that the ruling defies common sense because they're not living in institutions, they're living in homes because the reasons that they're living in these settings weren't said to be coercive they were said to be quite progressive about giving them a home and this kind of thing um, or even promoting independence and so to our ways of thinking today which is that we've liberated all these people from institutions haven't we done well uh, Cheshire West is a real problem um, so this this ruling was going to be a kind of chapter in this 
bigger book about empowerment, but it got out of control, Alex, and it's taken on legs of its own and it's become a completely separate book, which I want to get out of the way first, because understanding why Cheshire West happened, but also why it feels so strange, I think really needs us to go right back into the history of how we've ended up where we are today. Um, and so I started this history in the 18th century, when we at the beginnings of what historians call the carceral era, the very beginnings of where people start to be cared for initially in madhouses and then in institutions like the asylum and um, the workhouse as well was an important carceral site. And it, by the end, by the middle of the 20th century, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are formally detained in these kinds of settings. And ever since then, we've been trying to get them out. Mm -hmm. And so so to then say in 2014, actually, a lot of them are still detained, even though they're not in these old structures, is, um, is really tricky for us to get our heads around. Um, so the book is trying to get my head around this, at least. Um, and can, you, uh, can you give us a progress report on where your head is at, <laughs> as it were? Well, um, I mean, I think, I think people who, who have known me for a long time and who read my blog, uh, which I, I used to write much more religiously than I've done since I had kids, um, know that I was extremely critical of the Court of Appeal decisions that led up to Cheshire West. Uh, they were founded on a set of beliefs that were um, that were just untrue. I mean, they, they seemed to me to be founded on a belief that we only saw the kinds of restrictive practices that the judgments are concerned with in older institutions, that we only see kind of restraint of things in older institutions, and once you're out of those institutions, we're free. And I'd come into law having worked in community settings and been really shocked and kind of radicalized by what I'd seen in some of these settings and, and some really, really horrifying examples of restrictive practices, um, kind of what his, historically would have been called mechanical restraint is still practiced in community settings today. Um, and by no means all of them and often with very good intentions to keep people safe and so on and often because there are shortages of staff to do other do things differently. Um, and my real concern was that the logics of the Court of Appeal judgments meant that people living in these kind of post-carceral community settings wouldn't have really any effective scrutiny of their care. They wouldn't have somebody else coming in and saying, well, actually, does this person really need to be subject to these restrictions? Are there better ways that we can do this? Um, and when the Supreme Court judgment was handed out, I have this um, really vivid memory of sitting in my office reading it with my good friend and colleague Phil Fennell. And Phil turns to me, we'd scrolled to the bottom of the page and we sort of sat back and Phil turned to me and said, I think this is a case of being careful for what you wish for. Because the judgment said exactly what we thought, or certainly what I thought, I can't mm -hmm. speak for Phil. You know, I, in my view, people who were subject to continuous supervision and control and not free to leave, were in a situation of something akin to detention and the law should recognize that and the law should regulate that. So it was partly a symbolic calling out that I wanted and it was also the regulatory protections that the dolls, the deprivation of liberty safeguards could offer. But there were, there were for me even then niggling doubts and the niggling doubt for me in 2014, the day the judgment was handed down was around one of the people in that decision called Mig. Mm -hmm. So MIG was living in a, in a very, very domestic setting. It wasn't even quasi-institutional. Um, so she was living with a family who were caring for her. Um, and the other problem that I had with MIG was that she wasn't being 
physically restrained in any way. Any restraint was hypothetical on what would happen if she tried to leave. Um, and that Mig from, I mean, when you read these judgments, the voice that you hear is very, very partial. It's very, very edited by what the judgment, judges want to tell you. So we only learn in the Supreme Court, for example, that Meg is actually longing to go back to her previous foster home. The Court of Appeal doesn't tell you that. Um, but we know that Meg is expressing a positive love for her foster mother and a positive desire to be there. And there was even for me a real sense of, oof, I'm not sure it's helpful to call this detention and I'm not sure these safeguards are helpful in this kind of setting. Um, and the scale of what happened after Cheshire West has meant such a radical overhaul of the safeguards. I think there are legitimate concerns about whether what we've got now can provide a fully effective machinery for what we hoped for, which is targeting these very restrictive practices. Um, and, and I also think there was an article written by your colleague, Neil Allen, uh, called The Not-So-Great Confinement. And I, I, in my head, I, I, I now call this argument the Neil Allen point. And the point Neil Allen makes, and of course, Neil was, is, is a great mind and a great thinker, and he's, he's a great guy, and he, but he's also counsel for Cheshire West and Chester Council, who argued that Meg and Megan P weren't deprived of their liberty. Um, and Neil's point is, if you label these settings detention, what you might effectively do is cement that kind of mindset into these settings and actually make it worse by legitimating mm -hmm. these practices um, rather than eradicating them. Um, and actually Neil's point is something that Foucauldian scholars would have a lot of sympathy with because what Foucauldian scholars say is when you bring in the law to try to regulate something like this, Yes, you might stop that terrible ring of practices around the outskirts, the kind of Winterbourne views and the Stephen Neary's and these types of cases. But what you also do is normalize and legitimate the everyday and the center. And that makes it much harder to eradicate that if you've got a problem with what's going on at the center. Um, you put a kind of seal of approval on things that you, the activists and others might be trying to get rid of. So in a sense, so just just to sort of, yeah. is that in a sense that you're saying, well, this is a thing. If mm -hmm. you go through this process, then yeah. it's okay. Yes. I mean, in the sense of if you're saying this, everybody's deprived of liberty. Yeah. There's a process Article 5 says you need to go through, or you go through it, and then it's all right. Yeah, and I think, I don't, I think Neil Allen's, the Neil Allen point is, is really seriously important and we need to take it really seriously. Um, I also think it's an empirical point, you know, time will tell really whether these safeguards are making a difference. And actually for all our hot air and debate and money spent on this area of law and policy, there's very, very, very little research looking at their concrete effects on the ground. Um, so a lot of what's relied on is anecdotes and hunches and personal experiences. Uh, but even setting that aside, we have seen cases where the law has endorsed living arrangements that are truly shocking. Um, and that's because the, the deprivation of liberty safeguards and the Mental Capacity Act can only choose between the living arrangements that are actually on offer within our existing welfare structures. And the living arrangements that are actually on offer within our existing welfare structures are often not okay. 
they are often not the best place for a person to be. So I'm thinking of a judgment called MAG about a guy who was living in accommodation that was actually not suitable for his mobility needs. He was ending up having to kind of crawl around, which was very degrading, but also damaging, physically damaging to him. Um, and initially there's judicial resistance to kind of putting that legal seal of approval on it and saying, I'm going to authorize this detention in this place. Um, but the view from higher up the judicial system was if this is all that's on offer, it's all that's on offer and it's the best there is. And therefore we will authorize. And, and I think we know that the landscape of care today, I mean, particularly today, Alex, where we're talking, you know, in the middle of the, the COVID pandemic, it, it, it's not okay. And I think when we start saying that these restrictive practices or people living in settings where they don't want to live are okay, that can create challenges for activists wanting to drive through improvements. Um, and I think we don't quite know where that story is going yet. And I, and I think where this research has taken me is to look at historical analogies for what we're doing. So if we go right back into the 18th century there are no legal structures regulating care practices okay so i mean obviously there's kind of manslaughter and you know criminal law and things but there's really nobody kind of looking uh, at what is happening in care settings and toward throughout the 18th century where we've got this kind of emerging uh, commercial society we start to see what um historians of the period call the trade in lunacy and the trade in lunacy is where people uh, who, who call themselves keepers set themselves up as offering services to care for and confine and control uh, kind of deviant populations. So people who at the time were called mad or lunatics and, and who today might be referred to as mentally disabled in different respects. And those madhouses are, are hugely diverse. They might be just that you're, you're keeping one lunatic and you're in kind of locked in your attic or something in a kind of Jane Eyre type living arrangement. Or they might be, uh, some of them went up as big as a few hundred and they were really providing commercial services to people uh, like the war office and uh, the naval office and, and the living conditions varied hugely as well. So some of them might've been the gentry boarding out embarrassing relatives with the clergy and just in a kind of very, very uh, grand living arrangement. Um, and they were called single lunatics, where you might just have one person. Uh, or they might be kind of just warehouses of people providing services to kind of parishes and, and other bodies. Um, and during the 18th century, we start to see this growing concern around these madhouses. And that concern has really two foci. And the first is really around wrongful confinement. So there's this real concern that the madhouses are just locking up people who aren't mad and that people, uh, so for example, the wives might be claiming that their husband is mad because he just gets on her nerves and uh, paying a keeper to lock him up. Um, and you start to see these cases hitting the press and hitting the courts where it is found that people have been wrongfully confined. Um, and that once people are in these madhouses, because there's no one going in and there's no register of who they are, you can't get them out again. And the second concern, and it was very much a secondary concern, I think, in the 18th century, but became a bigger concern in the 19th, is even for the people who are in these madhouses with some justification, according to the logic of the time, the conditions were, were truly awful. I mean, um, 
we, we talk a lot about 19th century conditions in institutions, but in the 18th century, people would have been sleeping on rough straw on the ground. They might have been chained up. They might have been naked and not having nowhere to kind of go to the toilet. Uh, they might have been half starved. And there was a, a view at the time that the way to kind of drive madness out of people was to scare it out of them, perhaps by whipping them or really, really cruel treatments. Um, and in and we start to see these structures develop to regulate this. And the, the first it, the first law is in 1776 called the Madhouses Act. And it's been fiercely resisted by both the clergy and the doctors who run these operations that are making them lots of money. Um, and that provides a legal requirement to register anywhere receiving more than one lunatic. So anywhere that had two or more people would have to register. It wasn't just large institutions. Um, and anybody who was being admitted to these institutions and being kept as a lunatic uh, for a fee had to be certified. There had to be some kind of medical certification to show that they should be there. And so that's where we see the beginnings of what we today think of as licensing and regulation carried out by the CQC and what we're thinking of today around the detention safeguards. And we see those beginning in the late 18th century. And what I think is really important about this narrative is society didn't wake up and think, we want to lock these people up. Can the law give us a power to do it? Society was already doing this. And the origins of mental health law are about trying to regulate what was already happening. Mm -hmm. And I think you can draw some real analogies with the Dolls and Cheshire West there, that nobody woke up and thought, right, we want to detain 300,000 old ladies and people with learning disabilities. What was happening is that in the eyes of um, people like me and others, they were already being heavily restricted and arguably detained. And what we wanted was a set of legal safeguards to regulate that. And I think there's some really important analogies there. Um, we tend to think of particularly the Mental Health Act as a power to detain, but historically its origins are in trying to regulate what was already happening. But there's a but in the tale, and that but comes in the 19th and 20th centuries, which is that Madhouses Act didn't stop people being institutionalized. Hundreds of thousands of people were institutionalized by the middle of the 20th century from maybe a few tens of thousands at the beginning of the 19th. And it seems if you step back that that process of regulation, which was really justified, which was really important, also had a legitimating function, which enabled that mass incarceration. And so I think today with Cheshire West and the dolls and the liberty protection safeguards, it's not that we should get rid of them, but we do need to be extremely mindful that once you have that legal seal of approval, you can get mission creep and that you can start to see carceral functions expanding and being built upon. And we need to be really alert to that. It's so fascinating and we're so nearly out of time there are so many questions i'd want to ask you follow up on that and i know people listening to this will really look forward to reading your book in due course i think the one question i would ask in the kind of last mm. minute is does this mean we have spent the best part of 200 years focusing on the wrong right the right to liberty when in fact we should be focusing on what crpd would now talk about in terms of article 19 the right to independent living and are we, are we, do we spend too long looking at the negative right to liberty as opposed to the positive? There are other things which are more important here. I think if you only focus on the right to liberty 
and you don't have a hard edged funded policy and legal focus on independent living then what you will end up with is these detention safeguards just legitimating what is already occurring because nothing else is on offer it will temper the worst excesses and the rough edges but it will not get people living the lives that we want to see people living and i think one of the tendencies as lawyers because we've we've basically i mean as lawyers we've basically given up hope haven't we that the courts are going to drive through um you know significant changes to the funding and provision of welfare services i know i know there are many good people out there still bringing judicial reviews but every time we see them the results are pretty grim aren't they if we look at luke davies case and so on and and, and the real danger there is that we end up actually legitimating this really crap welfare settlement that we've got and i think we do need to be looking at creating a more transformative legal framework that's focused on positive rights um, and not just positive rights that are more or less unenforceable in the courts but ways that people can say actually i don't want to be in a residential care home and give them a hard-edged right to be supported in something else um, and i think we also should be looking creating stronger duties for bodies like the care quality commission to be regulating whether councils and providers are really delivering on that promise of independent living not just saying you know have you got a personalized bedroom or are you you know hopefully you're not being abused um and i think we're quite a long way from that and i i suppose one of my hopes from this absolute atrocity that we're seeing with COVID-19 at the moment is it might cause us as a society at the end of this to really take stock and think of a better way of doing things. Well, thank you. Uh, so do I. So do I. Um, thank you so much, Lucy. Um, your blog is The Small Places. It is a yeah. fantastic blog. I know you don't have quite the time to update it. You used to. But if anyone in particular, can I just plug for one second, if anyone in particular wants to know about the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, it's, I think, the first place I can direct people to. So thank you very much indeed for your time, Lucy. I'm now going to stop the recording function. Okay. And thank you everyone for listening. Great. Thanks, Alex.